before we begin this morning, I want to give my thanks to Lou for filling in the pulpit last week. Thank you, brother, and also thank you for your uh, really good Sunday school uh, series that you've been having on the Minor Prophets. I, I trust that uh, if you haven't been coming out, you have two more weeks to, uh, to uh, enjoy some of this good teaching. The week before Lou preached for me, I did a sermon on Father's Day, King David, a man, Esther, God's own heart. And we talked about what that meant and how we could become one. And I pray that it was a challenge to fathers. Well, I want to continue with a series on that, a series on David, a man after God's own heart. Now, when we were going through that, we did come to a part in that, which I call the elephant in the room. We had to address the elephant in the room, which was what? How could David be a man after God's own heart, having sinned grievously, namely adultery and murder? How could he still be a man after God's own heart? Well, I thought I would... Look at some of his psalms to go over what a man who has a heart for the Lord looks like. But I want to deal with the elephant in the room. We're going elephant hunting this morning. We're going to deal directly with it by going to Psalm 51. Uh, This expression, though, I'm often fond of expressions and phrases and cliches and And then I want to know how it began. And I am wondering, how did the expression, an elephant in the room, how did that expression begin? I doubt if it began literally. Uh, It it wouldn't be an expression if an elephant busted through your house and into your room. But it was uh, something that was coined uh, uh, around the 1950s to talk about a subject or topic that was just looming over everyone, but nobody was saying anything. Either they were ignoring it, they weren't aware of it, or whatever. Uh, As I was just kind of looking that up, I did find uh, a photograph here of an artist who took a picture of an elephant. That's a live elephant, by the way, uh, who was painted the same colors as the wallpaper. Um, And the truth is, no no matter... what color he looks like, you can't hide the elephant in the room. Well, then there's a a gal there sitting there just reading the paper. She's ignoring the big topic in the room, whatever that topic may be. Uh, Anyway, so the elephant in the room. So this morning, I want to get right into this because I want to look at other aspects of David uh, being a man after God's own heart, looking at the Psalms, but I want to clear the air with this. How can he be called a man after God's own heart with this grievous sin? Well, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. And before we begin, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, perhaps even more importantly than answering the question, how could David be called a man? After your heart with his grievous sin, 
after looking closer at Psalm 51, Lord, it's now time for inspection of our own lives and hearts. Father, what comes out of this is certainly, number one, we must understand your holiness. If we love you, we love all of you, all of your attributes, including your holiness. If that's the case, Lord, then we must also hate sin, even and perhaps even especially when it's in our own lives, yea, our own hearts. Father, we also find out through this psalm that there is forgiveness with you. And for the believer today who has already trusted Christ and is already forgiven of all of his sins, it's a matter of when he sins to restore his fellowship, not his relationship with you, because his relationship is eternally secure. But how should we still view sin? And Father, that's what we will look at today, but I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for your compassion, your loving kindness, and your mercy to all who come to Christ and to all who all confess their sin. And we'll thank you, Lord, for what you're going to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just quickly, and it's so hard to do a little bit of a review, but I think it's important. What does it mean, or what did it mean in the scriptures for David to be a man after God's own heart? Well, Chuck Swindoll says this. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. When he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says, this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. And that is bottom line biblical Christianity. Or you could say, when you are a person after God's heart, you give yourself completely to him, his word and his will. When you are a person after God's heart, you are deeply sensitive to the things of God, both his attributes and the truths that he says about everything else, like who we are, sin, but even salvation. And you're concerned about those things for yourself and for others. Now, just quickly, and, and I don't want to take up all of our time on this, but this is, this is so good. It's so important. Where did we get the beginning of the concept of a man after God's own heart? Well, that's when King Saul's kingdom was being taken from him. And Samuel said, the Lord is looking for someone who is after his own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. So we see that this is what the Lord desires. And in 2 Chronicles 16, it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. We took a look at all of the scriptures, particularly in Kings, that talked about 
the qualification of a man after God's own heart. Why the book of Kings? Why this whole study? Because as we're studying the book of Kings, we see all of these kings who are put up against the standard of David. And very few lived up to it. It would say this. We've seen in Acts when Paul talked about David being a man after God's own heart. It was equivalent to doing all his will. Now again, there's the elephant, isn't it? Doing all his will? He didn't do all his will. Well, we concluded last week with saying that it does not mean that we are perfect. Because there was only one who was perfect, Jesus Christ, the God-man. It says later on that you obey his word. David was a man after God's own heart who obeyed his word, not like these other kings. It said that he was a man after God's own heart because he was wholly devoted. And we're going to see that. You know he was wholly devoted to loving the Lord, serving the Lord. And he was wholly devoted to confessing his sin once it was brought to his attention. And also the phrase, he did right before the Lord, and he did. Now, again, from Scripture, we see that David was not perfect, and that's not my sermon today. We see he, he took an unwarranted census, uh, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. But what we're going to look at this morning is his attitude towards his sin his repentance and even remorse towards sin. One writes, David is constantly presented in kings as the standard by which other kings were to act and to be judged. This was not because David had not sinned, but rather because he repented appropriately from his sin and because sin did not continue as a pattern of his life. There's the summary of what we're doing this morning. And by the way, just in my own mind, as we were going through the book of Kings, I just thought of a number of kings who responded in the opposite way of David. I think of Ahab, who allowed his wife, allowed his wife Jezebel to kill the prophets of the Lord. I think of Joash who stoned Zechariah the priest when he came to him to tell him that what he was doing was not right. Amaziah, the king Amaziah of Judah, he threatened the Lord's prophet when he came to rebuke him and said, why should you die? We know even the prophet Jeremiah, which was a prophet at the same time, he was thrown into a cistern and his life was in jeopardy. Jesus said this, talking to the Jews. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So they were callous towards, when they were given revelation about their sin, they were angry, they were violent, and they even murdered. But that is not what David did, not murdering the prophet. 
I'd like now to quickly read verses 1 through 5, because I'm going to call this, verses 1 through 5, David's remorse over sin. Now, confession is not just remorse. There's a lot to it, and we'll talk about that. But, but you look for a word that describes Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, remorse over sin. And then it changes in verses 6 through 12, where it's more about God than it is him. It's, it's restoration with God and what God can do. And then thirdly, it's David's resolution to obedience, verses 13 through 19. If there's true repentance, there is a true change of life. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Now, beginning with verse 1, let's read down to verse 5, if we could, this morning. Psalm 51. Now, I'm going to try to get all 19 verses preached this morning. I'm going to try to do that without going over the time. But if I do, I will give heartfelt repentance about it. (laughs) All right, here we go. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So you know, going back, looking at the inscription, it gives us the sin and the timeline. And it was a time in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 when David looked out his window and saw Bathsheba taking a bath on her roof. And I guess at this point, too, we should just say that the blame should not go only on David, or she probably shouldn't have been doing that, knowing that it was exposed to the king's window. Secondly, when the sin did occur, she obviously agreed. But the sin was that he took her, had physical relations with her, sinned against God, and she was married. And so he tried to get her husband home from the battle. He was a soldier, and he wanted him to be with his wife so that the child that they found out that she was pregnant with would appear to be his. When he would not do this, when Uriah had more integrity than David at the moment, said he would not do that while the Ark of the Covenant still fighting for that, and while the other soldiers were out there, he he would not enjoy the comforts of marriage. And so David even got him drunk to try him to do that. And then finally David said, all right, to Joab, put him in the front line. And then as, as the war begins, see to it that he dies. And so now we have a multiple amount of sins, but Particularly, it is adultery and murder. And then comes Nathan, the prophet of God. 
And this is what a prophet of God does. He speaks for God in all of the circumstances in 1 Kings and in all of the prophets, but here specifically to David, and he gives him a parable. A parable about a rich man who had all the wealth and all the, uh, the livestock he could want, but he wanted one lamb from this poor man, and he took it from him. And all of a sudden we see David has a sense of justice. Because in the sense of justice, David says, this man should die. This man must repay fourfold. And there must be no mercy upon this man. And then, in the immortal words, words that help us in our Bible study to know what application is, David, you're the man. What happened at that point? Did he try to kill Nathan? No. There was an acknowledgement of his sin. As soon as he said that, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I do want to point out that there had been some time that had elapsed from the time of the sin and quite possibly from the death of Uriah. So we have David again who, yes, he's going to give the proper response, but up until Nathan approached him, he was ignoring the elephant in the room. And he acknowledged his sin, and the, Psalm 51 is this response to this revelation of God to his sin, and he takes it heartily. And this is why this is called David's heartfelt repentance And shows us why he's still a man after God's own heart. Well, let's look then further at his remorse over sin. Let's go through these. And I I will go through these more rapidly than I do normally. Because we have so much to cover. But after it says that in the inscription, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgression. This is David who knows he had sinned, knows it's worthy of death according to the law, and he throws himself upon the mercy of God. We we see he says, be gracious to me, or Lord, I need your grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's something that's given to us that we do not deserve. And I guess before we go any further, let's never forget that as believers. I know we're saved and we understand the cross and we understand we have eternal security. But do we always and ever remember we did not deserve salvation? There's no one who deserves salvation. No one who has earned salvation. Salvation is by God's grace. He gives it to those who are undeserving. Now, of course, we know that you have to come to Christ. That's the basis of the forgiveness. So you must come to Christ. And before we go any further, I just want to say, this psalm is not talking about salvation, but there's a lot of applications. And one is, if you are riddled with sin and you never came to Christ as your Savior That's what you need to do. When you come to Christ who died on the cross for all sin, all of your sin, the moment you trust him as your sacrifice for your sins, all of your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. This is why believers have the joy of the Lord. 
What happens when we sin after we're saved? Do we lose our salvation? No. Do we lose our relationship? No. Does it interfere with our fellowship with God? Yes. And that's where 1 John 1.9 comes in. If we confess our sins, talking about believers who are already saved and forgiven, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But David probably goes the extra mile. David shows what a man after God's own heart says and what he feels. And so this is, this is going to be a response to us as Christians of let's not be callous about sin. I know we have 1 John 1, 9, and I hope we don't quote 1 John 1, 9 as, okay, here we go, yada, 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 1 John 1, 9. Oh, my word. Hopefully there's some aspect of understanding God's holiness still and our sinfulness still that when we sin, there is a deep regard for this. Though all we have to do as believers is confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. He talks about his loving kindness. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. What a great word. This is chesed in the Hebrew, and it means God's covenantal love. And while that may sound, you know, kind of external, covenantal love, this is why he has love that's an everlasting love, and the scriptures attest to that, and David knows that. Psalm 136, virtually every verse says the same thing about that and says that you have, you, God, have an everlasting love toward us. one second as my notes have just disappeared but I know where they are so and if I could I'd I, I mean if I had to I would I would do it without notes but I'd rather not <laughs> I'd rather not okay so let me pull these up there just always has to be some glitch somewhere right God wants us to be humble and probably wants us humble while we're preaching. So in Psalm 136, verse 1, this is what he says. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. And so here's David throwing himself on the mercy of God and the love of God. And by the way, that's what salvation is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's, it's, it's the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that initiates it. And David is throwing himself upon that mercy. And then we see the word compassion, which compassion is the idea that God takes pity upon those who do not deserve it. He's moved to act uh, and it's often with mercy. Now notice the word blot. Blot out my transgressions. As we look at that, the idea of blotting out is the idea, if you would, something written down somewhere and then it's blotted out, whether for good or for bad, whether it's debt against you, that'd be great to wipe out those, or something written down. But anyway, it's being blotted out. If you remember, Moses 
when the people of Israel sinned and God wanted to destroy them all, Moses said, but now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. So David's saying, look, blot this out of the book. And what I appreciate about this, this is your heart as a believer, is it not? When you sin, you do grieve. The Holy Spirit grieves, and you grieve as you should. And when we do sin and confess it, we, we want that wiped out. We want to go back to a relationship with the Lord, uh, that we love him, that we adore him, that we have the joy of the Lord. This is what we want. This is what you have in your heart. Sometimes when we sin, this is what we have to go through, this confession, in order to restore fellowship, the joy of the Lord. Verse 2, it's the same thing. He says, wash me. I'm dirty. I want to be clean. You ever feel dirty with your sin? It says in Isaiah that our righteousness is but filthy rags. Well, then what do you think our sin is to God? And, and this is where David understands God. He understands God's a holy God, not a grandfatherly type of God. Oh, don't you worry. You know, it is different as a grandfather. Uh, you know, there's many things when you're raising your children, you know, you're not going to let them get away with because what, what the way they're acting is going to reflect upon you. So you do take very good care to discipline. But when they're your grandchildren, you laugh. And you say to yourself, you see, I wasn't so bad of a parent afterwards because now you have to deal with it and you're not handling it well. Anyway, that's not what God is, not just winking at things. God is a holy God and he hates sin. We'll see this brought out. And not only that, but sin must be punished. I don't care where we are in our spiritual life. That is a true principle and a biblical principle. Sin must be punished. But for the believer, his sin has been punished on the Lord Jesus Christ. He took our punishment. And this is how you almost can't understand why the whole world doesn't come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. And here in this uh, this verse 2 and then verse 3, uh, between all of these verses, he talks about three different types of sin. And by the way, do you know that there's more words describing sin in the Bible than there are words describing grace? Not that God is not a God of grace or his grace is not equal or his grace does not abound over our sin, but because we don't get it. We don't get it through our heads what sin is, how sinful sin is. And here we have the word transgression, which contains the idea of rebellion. Then there's iniquity, which means to deviate from God's way. Or let me say it another way, lawlessness or no regard for the law. I don't care. I don't care. And this is the way of the world. The world does not care about sin or God. In fact, they redefine sin so that there is no sin. And then, of course, the word sin. This is chata in the Hebrew and hamartia in the Greek. And both of them have the same meaning. It means to miss the mark. Like an archer. That's a good archer, hits the mark. 
or a bad archer that misses the mark. But what's the mark? God's righteousness. Now, you might be better than your neighbor, but, you, but, but we're not being compared to our neighbors. We're being compared to God and his righteousness. And we've all missed the mark. And here David uses that. But in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we see David is, you know, looking for every word that he can to describe how bad his sin was. And in verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He acknowledges his sin now. As I said before, he sinned, but he didn't acknowledge it. And you would think if David was a man after God's own heart, he would have acknowledged it immediately. Well, you would think if we're good believers and Christians, we would acknowledge our sin immediately. And that doesn't always happen. But it was revealed to him, as I'm sure it's revealed to us when we're in the word, uh, in prayer. Uh, Sometimes another believer will be kind enough to let us know, you know, that we've sinned. But he acknowledges it. He doesn't say someone else made me do it. I've, I've heard a, a situation this, this past week where an individual was confronted about their work ethic and just got very angry and mad and blamed everybody else and everything else. You don't see David doing that. He acknowledged it. It's before me. It's like the elephant in the room. I, I can't get rid of it except for confession and repentance. And it's at this point that, again, I'm going to reiterate 1 John 1.9. We're going to go back and forth to this, so you might as well turn to 1 John 1.9 and keep a finger in your phone right where it's at, a bookmark. Again, and John is writing to believers here, so this is not for salvation, though I'm not saying when you come to Christ, that there's no sin in mind and that that you don't confess it. But salvation is your faith in your substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for all of your sins. That is salvation. And of course, you need to know your salvation. And is there repentance? Yes, you turn away from saying, I didn't sin to I did sin. And I turn to Christ, who before I didn't think he was a savior, to now he's my savior. And then this will lead even to a change of life. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that the believer has. And I find so many aspects of Psalm 51 in this verse. And I'll point them out as we go through. And then in verse 4, David in verse 4 says specifically, against you, you only have I sinned? Now, he is not ignoring the fact that he may have sinned against Uriah, who is now dead, or against Bathsheba. He's not saying that at all. But he understands that God is the supreme judge. God is the supreme creator. And when you sin, it is against God. That's what you have to tackle first and foremost. Against you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's evil in, in God's sight. He, he's admitting it. It wasn't like, oh, well, it's not that bad. All sin is evil in God's sight. And we, we see this in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9, it says, 
if we confess our sins, we have to acknowledge it. And we have to acknowledge, first and foremost, we sinned against God. Do we ever apologize to other people? Yes, we do. Whoever you offend, you should go to and ask forgiveness. But ultimately, number one, it's God, because it's his world. He's the creator. This is who we've sinned against. And then he says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You're justified, God. You said I sinned and you're right. And you're the one who pronounces judgment on sin. Not only is salvation undeserved forgiveness, but salvation is relief from a deserved judgment and punishment. You know what the punishment is of sin? Hell. Eternal punishment in hell. That's what it is. That's how God views sin. Now, the believer comes to God as a filthy, sinful, sinful nature individual under the wrath of God and trusts Christ as his Savior who becomes the propitiation, the satisfaction, and the the wrath of God. The hand of God is moved away from those who put their faith in Christ. Why wouldn't you do that? But we see all of these coming out here. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, again, he's not making excuses. Nor is he saying that I was born an illegitimate child. That's not what he means, because he wasn't. Nor is he saying that my mother uh, had an illicit affair, which David's mother did not. What it means is, what he's bringing apart is, I am sinful through and through. Sin isn't just, oopsie, I made a mistake. Sin is in our heart, in our nature. We're depraved. In fact, theologically, we're totally depraved. Doesn't mean we can, we've done every sin, but it means we could. It's there. And, and, and David recognizes that, and that's why he's a man after God's own heart. And we too should recognize that as well. Well, I want to read now verses 6 through 12 because this is the next section. Because he's going to now concentrate on God. The first one was about himself and this remorse that he feels. But now the second part is he wants to be restored to God. And, and really that is the essence of it all. It's not just do I want to get out from under the punishment, but I want to be in fellowship again with you. So let's read verses 6 through 12. And I know some of these themes kind of uh, intermingle with each other, but you'll see it. He says, behold, you desire. So now he's talking about what God wants. You desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you hear the heart? You hear the heart of the man who has a heart after God? I don't want to be sinful. I don't want to be dirty. I don't want to be out of fellowship. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Well, first of all, he begins with, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost parts. God wants us to understand who he is, how holy he is, and what he thinks of sin. And so he desires this truth and acknowledgement of our sin. And by the way, that's all that 1 John asks us to do. In fact, if you're looking at 1 John again, if you have your finger there, it says, if we confess our sins, that word is the Greek word homologeo, which means say the same thing. He's not saying you have to run up to the altar. He's not saying you have to weep to have forgiveness. I'm not saying those things are wrong. But we have to say the same thing. David says, you want me to say the same thing. You want truth in my innermost being. When you call it sin, I now am calling it sin. And so we see this acknowledgement in the heart. And it is about David's heart, even though Nathan had to come and say, you're the man. And then purify me with hyssop. Hyssop uh, was used to ceremonially clean people. It was uh, something that was either dipped in blood or in water or both and then sprinkled on individuals in the Old Testament to cleanse them ceremonially. One of the people that this would happen to would be those who have leprosy. And I thought, boy, isn't that a good example? As we would view leprosy, whoa, God views our sin. Whoa, he cannot fellowship with our sin. And we are to be cleansed. And again, look at 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, then it goes to God. He is faithful and righteous. So he's not just winking at our sin. It's dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's this cleansing. There's this restoration with fellowship there. Verse 8, he says, restore my joy. He's not joyful anymore. When you're under the conviction of sin, you're not joyful. By the way, if you're an unbeliever, you've never trusted Christ, and you have the conviction of sin, you're not very happy either. You don't want anything to do with God, nor the message of the gospel from the person who's telling you, and they could be very mean or violent towards you. This is the response. This was even the response in the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from the Lord. But as a believer, we know of the joy. How about the joy when we first came to Christ and realized our sins were forgiven? I appreciated this morning, Lou was looking at a, a painting of Christ on the cross. And he said, I sometimes enjoy looking at this painting. Wow. Because this is where Christ died on the cross for me, my sin. It's the joy. And sometimes it's a serious joy, a holy joy. Sometimes it's not a laughter comedic joy. 
but it's a, it's a serious joy. It's a joy of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, fruit of the Spirit. He also says in there, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You know, guilt can even affect one's health at times. And he talks about other places like Psalm 38 where my bones are not in good health because I have this weight of sin and guilt. And David wants the weight of the sin and guilt to come off of him. And through confession and true repentance, it is for him and for us as well, according to 1 John. Verse 9, hide from my sin. We know in the Bible when we're talking about God's holiness, it says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. God cannot look at sin. He cannot fellowship with sin. It's amazing that God even tolerates sin, but only because looking to the cross. Isaiah 59, 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, with a believer, he's always there. You have a relationship. But there's some grief there between you and your heavenly father, perhaps similar to you and your father or you as a father and your child. You know how that goes. There's still that love and that relationship, but there's sometimes deep disappointment and grief. And David was guilty and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve were guilty and ashamed and hid themselves and covered themselves. God is holy. And if we love God, listen, if we love God, we're going to love his holiness. And if his holiness means he hates sin, then we're going to hate sin. And you can say, well, did David do that? Well, not when he sinned, he didn't. I mean, he loved sin there. But when it was brought to his attention, he hated sin. He had to get rid of sin. God, blot it out. And then he asked God, create a clean heart in me. I love the sentiment there. The great thing is for the believer, this has already been done. The moment you trust Christ, you become a new creation in Christ. You have a new heart created in you. Now, you still are going to struggle with the sin nature, the sin principle. You're still going to have to deal with that. But at least now we have a new nature, a new heart. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are a new man, Ephesians tells us. Specifically, chapter 4, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And here's David asking for that. And then verse 11, David asks that the Holy Spirit not be taken. And here we just need to answer some theological questions here. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was temporary. He was given to individuals for specific tasks for a time. This would also include prophets and also David. And when the job was done or 
Sometimes when there was sin, the Holy Spirit was removed. You remember Samson? Remember Samson when he didn't know that he had finally, you know, stepped over the last line? He did not know that the Lord had departed from him and he had no strength. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from him because of his sin. And David's not dumb. He understands that. He's going, Lord, don't do that. And, and you know, he already said, my pen is a, a, a ready pen for the Holy Spirit. He knew of some of this, of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These Psalms. And by now, he, he is, he is, this isn't in the beginning of his being the king. This, is, this has been farther along. But for the believer in the New Testament, when you trust Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit permanently. Now, we can still grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit, which I imagine, imagine for him, and I guess I'm speaking in human terms, for him, that must be terrible. He might have said, gee, what, you remember things, how things were in the Old Testament? I'd just leave. Well, I can't leave now. But I'm going to work on this believer so that he doesn't get involved in sin again. I'm going to help him to confess and repent and move on. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him, that's in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, okay, you've trusted Christ, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he goes on to say in chapter 4, you're sealed to the day of redemption, till you're in heaven. So we have it permanently, but we still can grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve him. And you grieve him when we sin, specifically on purpose. And we quench him when he wants us to do something, and we don't want to do it. We quench him. Fire has gone out. Remember being on fire for the Lord? Well, I know that it's been tempered with knowledge, which it should be, but it shouldn't be snuffed out. And so David prays, do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, now here he says, the joy of salvation. It's the joy of knowing I'm in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and salvation. And when you tell someone about it, you're not just telling them, but they're seeing it out of your heart and your words. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner just like you. But Jesus Christ forgave me when I trusted him as my Savior. Wow. And then he also says, and sustain me with a willing spirit. He even admits, Lord, I need you to help me do what's right because of the sinful nature. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And their salvation would refer to sanctification, the whole process. He's not saying you need to work to be saved. And then he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will the desire and to work for his good pleasure. It's the desire and the power. So many of the things that 
David is praying for are things that have already been applied to us because we are believers. But here comes the rub. And yet at times we're so callous of these things. We're so callous. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I've heard all that. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, I've heard all that. I know all that. Evidently not. Evidently you didn't get it. Evidently it's about your heart and your adoration. And then verses 13 through 19, it's a resolution. There's a resolution. And what he's going to say in here is, Lord, I want to get back to doing the types of ministry that I did as a godly king, as a king who did your will, who, as a king who did what was right in your eyes. And, and here, this is really repentance, The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means a change of mind, and that's what it is, and that's where it begins. It's a change of mind that I thought I was okay, and I'm not. I didn't think it was sin, but it is. I didn't think he was the Savior. I thought I was, but I'm not, but he is. And this change of mind leads into a change of heart. And this change of heart leads into a change of direction that I'm not going back and doing the same things. One of the sermons that I listened to on on Psalm 51 said, if you keep apologizing, but there's no change in your life, that's not repentance. That's, That's just voicing, mimicking words. Now, I understand. I fully understand here, folks. My feet are full of gumbo. I understand. It means I have feet of clay. The, the idea is, is that we're not going to be perfect in changing. We, we will never be fully changed until we're in heaven. But the idea is there ought to be some change, some turning around. If there's no change, no turning around, well, maybe there's some introspection that needs to be done. And so he begins with, and I'll read them, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Then, when I'm restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Evangelism and edification. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Another thing that a man after God's own heart does, we'll talk about that in pursuing weeks. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. We sang hallelujah. Hallelujah is a favorite word of David. It means praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, and this is so important, I think this is the key verse. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So quickly then, he is saying, I want to be restored to what I was doing. Teaching those who don't know God about God. Um, converting is the word here. 
sinners will be converted to you. And then also teaching. So he wanted to do that. This is what David did. And then verse 14. I want to pause here for a moment. He's going to talk about that he can joyfully sing God's praise again. But first he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. This is an interesting point. Now, blood guiltiness can refer to a lot of sins, but blood guiltiness can be a result of guilt over bloodshed, which David had done. So either David is referring here to the murder of Uriah or the fact that he knew that he was worthy of death. Murder, there's no sacrifice for murder if it's contemplated murder. Not every sin can be sacrificed for in the Old Testament. It would have to be confessed and faith in God's mercy. David Jeremiah writes this. Most sins were handled in the manner of transactions. If you committed some offense, you could perform some kind of sacrifice to make atonement. But there were two sins with no remedy, adultery and murder. Wow. Welcome to the real world, 2023. This is how God views those things. Sorry, preaching there. David had committed both of these, and they were written in God's great book in red letters. There was nothing David could do, no sacrifice to make, no atonement to seek. The accusing page of God's book was beyond his reach, All he could do was fall upon the mercy of God to blot out the red ink. No priest, of course, could do that. Only God had the solvent then and now. And of course, unless you have Christ as your prophet, priest, king, savior, Lord, son of God. It is interesting when David was told that he was the man and that he sinned. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. You shall not die. And this Psalm 51 is a response to that, opening his lips of praise. uh, And then he even looks at Jerusalem. It's beyond himself. It's beyond himself, it's his people, the people in Zion, in Jerusalem, that that they would grow in the Lord. All the other kings and first and second kings, they would never get rid of the high places and false worship, and, and the people were constantly in it, and they left them being that. None of them were trying to bring the Lord back. Well, there were a few. There, there were a scanty few, except David. And this is why all of the kings were compared to David, just because of things we see in this prayer. And then I think the concluding summary verse is in 17. I'll read it again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The word contrite and the word broken are strong. Contrite means crushed. My heart is crushed. Now listen, I understand that we're not to be in a permanent state of repentance, okay? 
but I also understand, do, are we never in lament? True lament? Doesn't have to be shared with everybody else, but do we ever personally one-on-one have lament over our sin? Are we ever grieved over our sin? That we see here from and learn from Psalm 51. Or a broken spirit, it's broken in pieces, shattered. It's the idea of a subdued, submissive heart. I am undone. I am yours, Lord. I am yours. And this is what is done in confession. But notice this last part, because I I don't want to be unbalanced here in the teaching, where he says this, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We come back to the mercy of the Lord. He began with the mercy of the Lord. He finishes with the mercy of the Lord. I want to emphasize the mercy of the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 32. Here's another psalm where David is confessing, but it's a joyful confession. Psalm 32, let's look at verses 1 and 2. A psalm of David. David didn't write all of the psalms. A maskil. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then drop down to five. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When God reveals his character, he not only says that he's a God of loving kindness and compassion, but he is forgiving. He says he is a forgiving God. He's a God of covenant meaning he will not go back on his covenant. And I know that there's sacrifices, but as I said, not all of the sacrifices covered everything. So there had to be still grace through faith in the Old Testament. And even when when they did bring the sacrifices, it had to be with the heart. maybe, Maybe there was some remorse over sin, but... Giving these offerings to the Lord was a joy to David. And it was a joy for God to receive them in that spirit, in that heart. Even though they merely covered sin, they did not take away sin. As we have said so many times here, and I'm so glad, could could be one of our theme verses at Grace Bible. Then the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not an Old Testament sacrifice. Took away the sin of the world. And of course, this is a picture of of Christ. Psalm 86, 5 now, getting back to God's forgiveness. For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 103 Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Speaking to Israel, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. A lot of anger dispensed on Israel because of Israel's sin. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah chapter 7 verse 8. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. One more. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins no more. And one more. If we, as believers, confess and say the same thing, acknowledge our sins before God, he is faithful every time and righteous, paid for at the cross, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me conclude with this. I realize there is a balance here between Old Testament under the covenant of the law, New Testament under grace. I understand that. God does not want a believer to be in a constant state of repentance of oversensitivity. I I could see somebody hearing this sermon and going the opposite way, the wrong way, and too much. In fact, maybe I put this in here for me. (laughs) But as believers, we truly need to know that when we trusted Christ as Savior, we were forgiven from all of our sin, past, present, and future. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not going to experience that degree of please don't take the Holy Spirit from us. And we're not trying to be saved again. As believers, we need to claim God's daily forgiveness in restoring our fellowship with him and the joy of our salvation. It says that his mercies are new every day. So that much we do need to do. When we sin, we need to confess it, say the same thing. And I think it's more than just saying it. I mean, somewhere along the line, I need to realize, number one, it violated a holy God. Number two, it caused the sacrificial death of his son on the cross for us. And that's a double-edged sword. On the one side, we're saying, oh, no. And on the other side, we're saying, oh, I'm so thankful. And we also need to understand sin, the way God defines sin. So what we learn from Psalm 51 is that we need to have a deep understanding of God's holiness and mercy, as well as a true understanding of sin, confession, and repentance. For this, this, was what made David also a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of David, who was not perfect, and neither are we. And yet we can please you, Lord, which I think is very similar to being a man or person after your heart. We can please you, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the new nature, by obedience. And when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. And I thank you for that, Lord, because there would be so much writing and rewriting and blotting out, Lord, the book of life, and we'd have gone through the paper, how to get a new book. 
But Father, I do understand that sin grieves you, grieves the Holy Spirit, grieves the Son of God. And we don't want to grieve you, Lord. We don't want to grieve you. We want to please you. We want to have the joy of salvation. We want to be as close to you as we can. We want to be a people after your own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.